John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, you follow along as I read. The Word of God says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And let's pray. Lord, help us as we look further into this uh, beautiful doctrine of eternal security. Uh, And thank you for such a great salvation that saves us to the uttermost. And we are thrilled to not only be saved, but to know the depth and breadth of what you've revealed to us. And I pray tonight you'd help us to cover a lot of ground and really get this fact settled that we do have the blessed assurance uh, that Jesus is ours and that we'll be in heaven someday. Holy Spirit, give me the words to say. Give us ears to hear. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. This morning we began a, a sermon about eternal security. That's our theme for the day during our spring program. The theme for the program is eternity. Uh, Today we talked about eternal security. Uh, This concept that once you are saved, you are kept by the power of God. And we got through the first ten reasons, uh, why Bible reasons, why we believe in eternal security. Tonight, I'm going to give you as many more as I can. I've got a list of 46 Bible reasons about why we believe in eternal security. Uh, And so I don't know that I'm going to get to all of it, but I am going to try to move fairly quickly, and we're going to follow along in our Bibles. I said this morning that sometimes we go down deep on a handful of verses, and sometimes we just give an abundance of verses about a subject And even if you don't remember every truth, which I wouldn't expect you to, every verse we go to just further reiterates and nails down this fact that we are eternally secure in Christ. That we not only can't save ourselves, we can't keep ourselves saved. So I don't expect you to remember all 46 things, but I do expect you just one after another. Man, we are saved. We are so saved. You know, God keeps us and and we're eternally secure uh, and over and over, I want you to, to get that. And if you leave church tonight thinking, wow, I'm saved, and God keeps me saved, and I can have joy and peace in that, then that's, that's a worthy goal. Amen? But tonight I wanted to start with, with a little bit of an introduction that I didn't touch on this morning. The Bible warns us repeatedly that Satan would try to infiltrate the church through false doctrine and foolish heresies. Especially in the epistles, we have the Gospels uh, that record the life of Christ, and we have the book of Acts that uh, tells about the start of uh, Christ's churches. Uh, And then we have the book of Romans that gets into doctrine, and Romans through the epistles uh, give us a lot of doctrine, but also there's there's a lot of warnings in there about uh, corruption already coming into the church. And really... Uh, Jesus died on the cross around 33 A.D., uh, and 30 years later, just 30 years later, churches were already being rocked by a heresy and false doctrine. Uh, And so we've got to understand that Satan immediately got busy trying to infiltrate the church uh, with doctrine and heresy. 
And we see that today. Christianity is polluted and diluted by many unbiblical ideas. Why are there so many versions of, air quotes, Christianity out there? Uh, A lot of people can look at the Bible, and, and if you don't rightly divide the word, I was telling someone after church today, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say if you take verses out of context and and don't study the Bible. Uh, the Bible uses the phrase, rightly divide the word. If you don't study the Bible uh, appropriately, then you can twist and pervert, and the Bible uses the phrase, wrestle. You can wrestle the Bible, twist it into saying uh, really whatever you want. That's why it's so important that we understand the Bible as a whole. We spend a lot of time defining words, showing you a lot of different verses on a subject uh, so that you get the full picture of what the Bible's saying on a subject. And that, that is so important. One of the oldest false doctrines is the idea that you're saved by faith in Jesus, but once you are saved, you can be unsaved. Once you are forgiven, you can be unforgiven. Once you're born, you can be unborn. So I think the first false doctrine we see in the scriptures is, is that you can earn your way to heaven, which the Bible spends an awful lot of time dealing with the fact that you don't get, nobody gets to heaven by their works. Right? We, we get to heaven by grace through faith. And then probably the, one of the second oldest false doctrines in regarding to salvation is this idea that, well, you're saved by faith, but then you have to keep yourself saved. If you really drill down in the book of Galatians, that entire book deals with this false doctrine that I'll show you after a while. The churches of Galatia, they believed a false gospel, but one of the, the elements of this false gospel was you begin in the Spirit and then you're made perfect by the flesh, but through works. And so that false doctrine is still alive and well today. And just by way of introduction, I want to remind you that there are four major ideas or ways of thinking when it comes to eternal security in the Scripture, and I'm going to tell you what category that we would fall in. The first, view number one, These people believe that truly saved persons can forfeit salvation by sinning, but may regain salvation by repentance. So according to this view, sin destroys the believer's relationship with Christ. And then you have to get saved again. So you get saved, God forgives your sins, but then when you sin, now you have more sin that's not forgiven anymore, and you can get those things saved but you're constantly losing your salvation because you're constantly sinning. Now, among those that hold this view, there's no agreement over the number of sins it takes to cause a believer to become lost. This is a problem. Some would believe, or some would argue, that one unconfessed sin is enough to send you to hell. Others believe that there's an undisclosed amount of sins that would send you to hell. Usually the way this works in practice is, whatever sin I'm committing doesn't send me to hell, and whatever sin you're committing sends you to hell. Because there's no consensus. The Bible says nothing about how many sins it takes for you to lose your salvation. Uh, and, and what a, a, a foolhardy thing to try to figure out all those details. Also, we see that this view does not leave room for chastening of a disobedient believer. 
And then a final problem is, it's hard to know if you're ever truly saved if you can lose your salvation and there's no way of knowing how many sins or what specific sins cause you to lose your salvation. So it's impossible for you to know, which would be in violation of 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. So this is where uh, Pentecostal folks would fall in this. Uh, charismatic, some charismatic churches. And when I say Pentecostals, there's a lot of stripes of Pentecostal. There's a lot of stripes of charismatic. A Church of Christ, Campbellite, any group that teaches that you can get saved and then if you sin after salvation, you lose your salvation, falls into view number one. View number two states that truly saved persons can forfeit salvation only by renouncing faith in Christ And once this happens, it's impossible for them to be saved again. Uh, According to this view, there's a parallel between obtaining salvation and forfeiting it. uh, And uh, interesting. All right, view number three. God chooses and predestines certain people to be saved apart from any foreseen faith or work. So, These people in group number three believe that Christ only died to save certain people and and God decided ahead of time who would be saved and who would not be saved. According to this view, a person who's elect cannot forfeit salvation and become lost, lost, but they also can never know if they're truly one of the elect. Because the way that they know that they're one of the elect is they persevere or basically keep serving Jesus till they see him. If you do that, then you're one of the elect, but there's no way to know that until you get to heaven. So again, these people really have no way of knowing if they're elect. We would put uh, most of what's called Calvinism today is actually hyper-Calvinism. One man rightly said Calvin wouldn't be a Calvinist by today's definition. And people often ask, are you an Arminianist or are you an Arminian or a Calvinist? And I say, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, <laughs> right? You don't have to put me in some hole defined by, by some guy a long time ago that believed certain things. Uh, I'm, I'm a Bible-believing Baptist Christian, uh, and I believe the Bible. And so these folks can't know, but Calvinism, hyper-Calvinism would fall in this. Also, one of the flaws you see with this type of thinking is, those who are the elect, it's interesting that their kids are always elect. I've never met an elect Christian who says, I'm, I'm one of the elect, but my kids have to go to hell. Now, your kids might have to, but their kids don't. And this is where once you get unanchored from the scripture, a lot of it turns into feeling. A lot of it turns you into the umpire of what's right and wrong. And as I often say, that, that was the, the promise of Satan in the, book, in the book of Genesis in the garden. Lucifer told Eve that in the day you eat of the fruit, you shall be as gods. You'll get to decide what's right and wrong. You'll know for yourself. And I'm leery of any doctrine that puts me in the place of God, that puts me as the umpire of right and wrong. That's not my place. There's one master... Uh, And we are to follow him. And thankfully, he left us a good amount of of scripture uh, and knowledge of how to follow him. Okay, then we have view number four. And this is the the view we would hold. 
True believers in Christ are eternally secure because of God's protecting plan. We can be absolutely certain of our own present and future salvation through the promises of God found in the Bible. Doesn't that sound good? We can have assurance. We can know. According to this view, the emphasis is not upon the believer's responsibility to persevere, but rather upon the Savior's promise to keep saved all those who are truly saved. So we can say it like this. We believe that true believers are eternally secure because God tells us how to be saved and keeps his promise. Don't miss this. Eternal security is based upon the promises of God, not on our ability to follow him. If it were based upon my ability to follow him, I'd lose my salvation a hundred times a day. Thankfully, our salvation is based upon the promises of God. All right, and I, this was in our bulletin this morning, but I'll go ahead and read it for you. Uh, for those who are watching online, let me read from the Curtis Corner Baptist Church Statement of Faith regarding eternal security. We believe that all redeemed once saved are kept by God's power and thus secure in Christ forever. I think that's a good statement. But there's a second statement that goes with that. We believe that it is the privilege of believers to rejoice in the assurance of their salvation through the testimony of God's word, which, however, clearly forbids the use of Christian liberty as an occasion to the flesh. And I had a conversation with someone today, a sincere person, and, and I, I respect their question. They said, well, that doesn't mean that we can just go out and sin, right? Well, well no, of course not. The Bible's clear that we don't sin, that, that God's grace can abound. Actually, the grace of God should keep us from wanting to sin and to serve him. Listen, if you're looking for a license to sin, you need to check your heart. Because you're either not saved or you are truly backslidden. How much can I get away with? How little do I have to do? What's the least amount I can do and still go to heaven? Those are all the wrong questions. That's right. And that's a hard issue. And so we need to find out what God wants and then follow God. And listen, God's plan is that you are so overcome by gratitude and love for him, for what he's done for you, that you would do anything for him. It's the law of reciprocity. He did so much for us, we can never repay it. I want to do whatever I can for him. And that's the right Amen. Christian philosophy. Now let's dive into... Uh, 46 Bible reasons you can't lose your salvation. And we went through the first 10 today. <clears throat> We're going to pick them up here in John chapter uh, 10. Number 10 I gave you this morning was Jesus knows his sheep. We looked at John 10 verses 14 and 27. Let me give you number 11. We're going to move very quickly. Jesus gave you eternal life the moment you believe. Look at John chapter 10 and verse 28. And I give unto them eternal life. Oh, that's pretty plain, isn't it? I wonder what, what happens when we get saved. God says, I give unto them eternal life. He gave you eternal life the moment you got saved. And then hearkening back to one that we talked about before from John 3, 16. God said, if you believe in me, you shall never perish. Perish meaning die and go to hell. So Jesus says, I gave you eternal life and you're not going to hell. That's a pretty good reason to believe that you're not going to hell. 
That's all right. If it's for me, tell them that I'm busy. All right, look at uh, the verse again. John chapter 10, verse 28. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So here's reason number 12 that we believe in eternal security. You are in Jesus' hand and no one can pluck you out. So here's, here's the, the beautiful illustration. Jesus says, once you get saved, I save you, I give you eternal life, and I tell you you're never going to die and go to hell. And then I pick you up, Jesus says, and I put you in my hand, and I protect you in my hand. Every born-again believer is safe in the hand of Christ, and he says, no one can get you out of my hand. I had a man tell me one time, he said, yeah, but I could crawl out of his hand. No, you can't. And I'm like, <laughs> well, you must be strong, you know. It's impossible. Um, I said, are you a man? He said, yeah. I said, let's read that verse again. No man, man. shall pluck them out of my hand. Man. Sounds like that includes you. That's right. All right. By the way, if you're truly saved, you wouldn't want to get out of his hand. That's right. And so Jesus picks you up and puts you in his hand. That's reason number 12 we know we're saved. But then reason number 13, if you look at verse 29 of John chapter 10, my father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. So watch this. Reason number 13, we believe in eternal security, is because the father placed his hand over the son's hand, and no one's more powerful than the father, Jesus said. So now we are doubly protected in the hand of Christ covered by the hand of the Father. Do you think anybody can get you out of there? Nope. Is anybody in the universe, any being that's ever existed, capable of prying God's hands open? <clears throat> and if you could get Jesus' hand open, which you can't, you can't get God's hand open, the Father's hand. Nope. And so imagine how safe and secure we are in that hand. <clears throat> and then number 14, we find in verse 30, he says... I and my Father are one. Verse 14, we believe in eternal security is the combined strength of God the Father and God the Son is protecting your soul. Wow. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's good. It's a pretty good reason to... You just blew my mind right there. <laughs> we just blew Dennis's mind. All right, look at John chapter 11. John chapter 11... We find the 15th reason why we believe in eternal security. Jesus promised that you would never die. Look at John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. <clears throat> Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Verse 26, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Isn't that beautiful? Amen. Believest thou this? And the answer is, I do believe that. And so Jesus promised, hey, you believe in me, you're not going to die. Now, clearly he's talking about the second death because Lazarus is dead physically. He's already dead physically. He's not saying that you're not, your body's not going to die. Of course, we have to shed this body so our, our supernatural soul can go uh, up to glory. But we would never die the, the second death. And never means never. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. That's good news, isn't it? Amen. 
Amen. Hallelujah. Look at, look at Acts chapter 16. <clears throat> Acts chapter 16. We move quickly. And I'm just going to see how far I can get. <coughs> Acts chapter 16. And look at the famous verse 31. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Now here, let me give you a technicality of the Greek language. One reason why we believe in the fullness of time God gave the New Testament when Greek was the language of the day is Greek is a, a far more precise way to communicate. Verb tenses and verb conjugations and, and the structure of the language is far more precise than uh, English. And one beautiful truth out of this verse is number 16 is we are saved at one point in time. And the phrase shall be saved is in the Greek orist tense. This is a tense that, that uh, we don't really have in English. It means that the action occurred at one point in time and it doesn't keep occurring. So it occurred at one point in time, not many points. So the idea here is Thou shalt be saved. You're going to get saved once. And you're only going to get saved once. Why? Because you only need to get saved once. That's right. You don't have to get saved over and over and over and over and over again. That's right. For the example, the Bible says, Knock and it shall be open unto you. That verb tense is knock and knock and knock and knock and knock. It's a continual action. This verb tense is it only happens one time in the past, not at many times uh, ongoing. So we believe we're saved at one point in time according to the scripture. This means we are saved once and for all when we place saving faith in the person and work of Christ. And that goes along with the rest of the scriptures that we understand about salvation, doesn't it? You don't get saved over and over. You only get born one time. You only get born again one time. All right, let's look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And look at verse 15. If you have not received again the spirit of bondage, excuse me, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So we believe we're saved because God is our Father. We already talked about when we get born again, we're born into the family of God. But literally this verse talks about God being our Father Whenever we're born again, the word Abba is the Chaldean word for father, and it's also, fo it's also followed by the Greek word for father. And the reason why we see both of those together is Abba is a term of endearment like daddy or papa, and the Greek word for father is, you know, I never called my dad father. Father, what's for dinner? <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't use that word, it's... That's more of a formal word. So the beauty of this verse is you have the word daddy and the word father together showing that we have not only a, a legal a connection, a, 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 an official claim to God as our father, but we have the closeness of a relationship that says daddy. My kids come to me, hey dad. 
hey, Daddy, one of my kids call me Papa sometimes. And that, that's a term of endearment. And so we have that relationship with God as our Father, not just this stoic relationship at a distance, but this very intimate Daddy-type relationship with God the Father. And that's a, a good reason to know that we are uh, eternally secure. And then in the same verse, it says, For ye have received not the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption. And so reason number 18, we believe in eternal security, is that uh, you are twofold the child of God by birth and by adoption. Now, we've talked about this in the last several months. Some, and I think this is a powerful illustration of how saved we are when we trust Christ. We are the children of God through the new birth, this speaks of the undeniable bond of a biological connection. And we are the children of God through adoption. This speaks of God's choice. God chose us. I have a, a strong, unbreakable bond with my biological children because they are literally part of me. But I didn't choose them. Like winning the lottery, right? It's like uh, you don't get to choose boy or girl personality, height, all those things, you get what God gives you. But if you were to go to a, an orphanage and look at all the children and you can say, I choose to love that one for the rest of my life. And so this is a beautiful truth where God says you, you have the biological connection of being born to me, but you also have the understanding that I chose you. And there's also some wonderful truths there. The Jews didn't have a law of adoption. If a man died, his brother would automatically become the head of his household. So there's no need of a, the idea of, a, of adoption in Jewish society. But notice we're in the book of Romans. The Roman law had a very specific law when it came to adoption. And so, for example, the parents freely chose the child, ensuring they were desired by the parents. So if a, according to Roman law, if you were going to adopt a child, you would free, freely choose the child. Then the adopted child would receive a new identity. That sounds nice, doesn't it? We become new creatures in Christ. Also, any prior commitments, responsibilities, or debts of the adopted child were erased. And then one of those beautiful truths is that an adopted child could not be disowned by adoptive parents. They became a permanent part of the family. So according to Roman law, if you had a natural-born child, you could disown them. But according to Roman law, if you adopted a child, you could never disown them. Because you chose them. And they were a part of your family forever. And isn't it, isn't it interesting that in the book of Romans, God says, I've adopted you. And we have those beautiful truths. I think that's glorious uh, for sure. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Number 19. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit, reminding us that we're saved. So the indwelling Holy Spirit that comes in when we get saved, He provides a calm inner assurance that we are the child of God. Now, if you are filled with the Spirit that calm assurance gets very strong, unmistakable. If you are grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit and you're drowning out His voice, not listening to His voice, then that uh, bearing witness can get very faint. And it's not uncommon 
when a truly born-again Christian gets into sin and they have been telling the Holy Spirit to be quiet, they also often begin to lose that assurance that they're saved because the Holy Spirit's the one that's supposed to be providing that assurance from the inside. You, know, you say, how do you know you're saved? There's a lot of reasons I know, but I just know it. Right. I, like, how do you know you're, you're called to preach? I, don't, I just know it. I know it on the inside. It's the Holy Spirit bearing witness in, in my spirit. And so that, that calm assurance of the Holy Spirit is part of the great benefits of our salvation. I look at Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. We see several here in this passage of Scripture. The famous verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Now I think all of us would agree that in order to qualify as them that love God, you'd have to be saved. Right? The bare minimum there is that you'd have to be a believer uh, to qualify. And then these that love God, God has a specific purpose that He's trying to accomplish in their lives. And look at verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. So we see several things here. Let me give you a number 20, the 20th reason why we believe in eternal security. God foreknew those who would be saved. So we just talked about foreknowledge when we were talking about the eternal God a few weeks ago. A foreknowledge simply states that God lives outside of time, and so he knows ahead of time what everybody's going to do. Now, this is not determinism. It's not that God decided what everybody was going to do ahead of time. He just already knows because he's already there. So at the same time, God is in the past, he's in the present, he's in the future. God is in all times, all the time. So if you imagine... uh, Time, as a, as a linear line, God is above it all and over it all. So he can see the past, present, and future all at the same time. And in a sense that is truly mind-blowing, he's in the past, present, and future all at the same time. So foreknowledge is simply God already knows the choices we're going to make. And God looked down through the portals of time and said, I know the ones who are going to choose to trust me. And I know the ones who are going to choose to reject me. And this happened before creation itself, God knew. So his foreknowledge says, I know who's going to trust me. And we see verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, those people he did foreknow. Then we see number 20, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So the reason 21, we believe in eternal security is God predestined those he foreknew would trust him. Now again, this is not God deciding. He's not looking at people going heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. He's saying, I know the choice you're going to make, so I am going to choose that you will be beholden to the choice you're going to make. And so a God predetermined or predestined that all who he foreknew would be saved must be conformed to the image of his son. And we see this through personal sanctification. Every believer becomes more like Christ the longer they follow him. But the believer's transformation when Christ comes again is the ultimate goal of this predestination, which we'll see 
in just a moment. Reason number 22, we believe in eternal security. God called them he foreknew. So look at verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, <coughs> them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So we see in this, he foreknew them, he predestined them, he called them, he justified them, he glorified them. So a lot's happening in this. Uh, and called simply means to summon or draw. So God knew who would accept him. And he decided that those who accepted him would go to heaven. And now he draws those to him who he knew would accept him. John 6, says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. So this is what the Bible, again, the Bible's all weaving together perfectly. And then number 23, we see God justified them who he foreknew, predestined, and called. Justified means the full remission of all sin with absolution from guilt and punishment. It's an expungement. So some people have a record. <clears throat> if, if you Maybe they've served their time, but if you were to go look at their legal record, they would say, well, this person was got a ticket for this. This person went to jail from this state to this state for this. This person's convicted of this. An expungement is when they literally remove the transgression from your record. So somebody did wrong, they got expunged, or pardoned, and now if you go look at their record, there's no record at all that they had ever done anything wrong. And this is kind of the idea of justified. When God says, I just, I, I'm justifying you, it's a legal declaration that there's nothing, there's no sin on your account. It's been completely and totally erased, and it's just as Hallelujah. if you never sinned at all. Amen. Past, present, and future sins are forgiven and removed from the record. And that's an important detail when it comes to eternal security because a lot of people say, well, I know Jesus forgave all the sins I did before I trusted him, but what about all the sins I did after I trusted him? That's a good question. And the thing we have to remind them is when Jesus died on the cross, you weren't even born yet. That's right. All your sins were in the future. That's right. Right? Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. I'm 2,000 years late to the party, but he knew I was going to live. He knew every sin I would ever commit. That's right. And on the cross, God took every sin of every person who would ever live and placed them on Jesus. So this is where it gets mind-bending. <clears throat> because God is eternal, at one point, at one moment in time, God took every sin that would ever be committed and placed it upon Jesus and there he paid for it. <laughs> it was a little mind-blowing. But see, when, you, when Jesus died, all your sins were future. Amen. So it makes sense when you got saved, Jesus forgave you not just of the sins that you had done, but of every sin you were ever going to do. That's right. That's right. And that's part of the concept of being Amen. justified. And then we see number 24, God glorified them who he foreknew, predestined, called, and justified. So glorification is the doctrine that states God will deliver us from the presence of sin. So it basically talks about going to heaven. The process whereby I shed this, this corrupt flesh and I am translated, my, my eternal soul is translated to heaven. The Bible calls that being glorified. And this is a beautiful truth. Notice that all of these actions are in the past tense. So look back at verse 29. Whom he did 
foreknow, past tense. He also did predestinate to be conformed, past tense. Verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, past tense. And whom he called, them he also justified, past tense. And whom he justified, them he also glorified, past tense. You've got to understand that in the mind of God, you are so saved that all these things are already done. And we'll see that further in the scripture if I get down that far. So in God's mind, those who believe are already glorified. You want to really bend your mind? In the mind of God, in God's view, He is with us right now in heaven. That's right. You say, that doesn't make any sense. That hurts my brain. <laughs> well, I don't think we're going to get to it, so I'll tell you. The Bible you. talks about us being seated in the heavenlies. That's right. When God looks at you, it's like He can see you already sitting in heaven. You're that saved. That's right. That's pretty amazing. Now, back to the world that we can actually understand and grasp. So, a beautiful truth here is that glorification or justification equals glorification. It's impossible to be justified but fail to be glorified. And boy, that's powerful. All right, look at, look at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. What shall we say then? Excuse me, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? That's a good verse for you to quote whenever people are giving you a hard time. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? One of the greatest prayer promises in the Bible. You're praying for help for God to pay a bill, and he's like, I've already given you, I've already given you my son. I'm not trying to withhold things from you. You're praying for healing and things. God said, I've given you the best I have. He's not, he's not holding back on us. Amen. But then look at verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Now here we get this word elect. These are not people that God chose to go to heaven. <clears throat> These are people that God knew would choose him. So he predestinated them and elected them. So basically God chooses those who choose him. But I like... Verse number 25, the 25th reason we believe in eternal security. God is the judge of the soul, and he justifies those who believe in Jesus. Amen. So verse 33 says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. God's the ultimate judge. And he's the one who said, If you believe in my son, then you'll be forgiven your home reserved in heaven. And no one can rebuke us. The accuser of the brethren, the devil we find in Revelation chapter 11, I believe, is constantly accusing the brethren. Those charges don't stick. It's God that justifieth. He's the judge. Amen. And he told us how to get to heaven. All right, look at verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, ye rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Reason number 26, we believe in eternal security. The risen Christ refutes all condemnation against us. 
Think of this. No accusation can stand when the one who paid for all of our sins is defending us. It's a pretty good deal. Wow. And so we believe in eternal security. Look at verses 35 through 39. And I, reason number 27 we give, Bible reason to believe in eternal security, is nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Would you look at these verses and just be in awe? Look at verse 35 and read along as I read. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us, the saved, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does that make you feel loved? There is no problem, no place, no person that can break the bond we have with God through Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful truth. Hey, well, you don't know what I've done. Well, you need to take another look at that list. You don't know, you don't know what people... You, you, just take a look at that list. It covers everything, folks. And it's a beautiful thing. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll give you a few more and then we'll go to the house. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. So the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. At the moment of salvation, we become part of Christ's body, the body of Christ is not an amputee with pieces missing. So imagine, oh, you're part of the body. Oh, no, you're not. You're part of the body. Nah, no, you're not. You're part of the body. Ah, you blew it. You're, you're part of the body. Ah, no, not anymore. This doesn't make any sense. And we see the, the wonderful illustrations that God gives us. All right, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse... 17, the famous, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so here we have the 29th reason why we believe in eternal security. You are a new creature. The word creature means creation. When we are born again, a new creature is created in the image of Christ. Again, this points back to the new birth. But the focus here is on the fact that we are absolutely brand new. God's not in the habit of reforming sinners. He's he's in the miracle working business of making sinners brand new. A new nature, a new identity, a new family. I look at verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Great verse. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. him. What a beautiful truth. And we see here, 
Reason number 30, Christ became sin for us and gave us his perfect righteousness. I want to make a statement and I want you to never forget it. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees his son. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees his perfect son. That's the power of salvation. You know, the song, what sin are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. God has the ability to remove our sins as far as from the east as from the west, to bury them in the deepest sea. He has the ability to choose to forget our sin. It was all placed upon Christ. He, when he looks at us, Hallelujah. he sees his son. That's right. I'll leave you with this last one. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And here's reason number 31 we believe in eternal security. Once born into God's family, you cannot be unborn. That's it. Right there. We see a lot of things get born. I've never seen anything get unborn. I've seen things die, but wait a minute. Jesus said you'll never die. That's right. So Christians can't get eternal life and then die. Well, then they get unborn. Well, that's, that's never happened in the history of the planet, and it's not, it's not talked about anywhere in, his, in the Bible. There's nowhere in the Bible that talks about an unbirth. And so when we become God's child, we have been given eternal life. And Jesus said multiple times, ye shall never die. We believe in eternal security. We've got 15 of these that we didn't get to. Uh, but I, I hope that you understand and you're, you're getting this over and over in your heart and mind. Man, when Jesus saved me, he did a good job. <laughs> right? Hebrews says we're saved to the uttermost. You couldn't be any more saved. And now there are Bible verses that make it sound like you can lose your salvation. As I said this morning, those need to be studied out thoroughly. And there are gems to learn in those things. But we never use an obscure verse to disprove an obvious one. And we're not going to use an obscure verse that, that might mean something to disprove 50 verses that say something else. It's part of rightly dividing the word. But when you study those things out, you can say, oh, now I see what God means by these verses. I will say this. The Bible's very clear. Examine yourself. The only one that knows whether you're saved or not is you and God. And this is something that you need to take very seriously. There are verses in the Bible that warn you about a casual profession of faith. And I think we need to be very careful. We need to be very sober when it comes to the soul. Either you're saved or you're not, and God wants you to know whether you are or not. So why not do some investigation into your heart and life and into the scriptures and find out whether or not you're saved? That's the right way to do it. And then once you realize, hey, I'm saved because of what God said and I did what he asked me to do, 
and I believe in Jesus Christ in the ways that he's told me to, then we can live with assurance and joy that heaven's going to be our home. Isn't that a blessing? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth. And Lord, there need not be confusion about this topic. I understand the questions, and I, I think it's important that we have good answers for them. But Lord, I'm thankful that there's no other condition to eternal life than belief in the person and work of Christ. Help us to understand the Bible and do a good job explaining it. And Lord, we ask that you would give us assurance and joy so that we can rejoice in our own salvation and then confidently tell other people about eternal salvation and a God who keeps his word and a salvation that's real and free. So I pray you'd remove our doubts and help us to spread truth into the world. Heads about our eyes are closed. Would you take a moment and ponder what God spoke to you about? Do you have assurance? Do you have some doubt? If you can't get it settled by yourself, then talk to someone about it. Talk to your parents. Talk to a friend. Talk to me. And we can take the scriptures and let the scripture decide. And then God wants you to have enough assurance where you can have joy in your daily life and you can be confident to speak to others. Would you ask for that confidence? Would you ask for that joy? On your worst day, you should be able to find joy in the fact that you are going to heaven someday. I think it's a well that we don't drink out of enough. 